the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. So I'll start off just uh, with Tenakoto, 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 Kotor, and Kira Etefano. It's good to see. I feel like we're amongst family, and there are a lot of familiar faces here. Um, you know, just all around the place. But I really want to call out Barbara here. She was our amazing neighbour for 19 years in Fodder Fodder. We were the next door neighbours there, and it's just great to see her cheery face here as well. And a number of you, of course, because we just start from Hamilton, just down the road, of course. And again, often I see familiar faces. I thought I've seen you either at Innovation Park, in the case of Neil and so on, others. But anyway, it's great to be in the house of God to really feel uh, His presence here this morning, the worship. So, Murray and Jenny, thank you for welcoming us here today. It's a it's not a question of carving out time we're here. It's a privilege we always find we are blessed by being in these places of worship, sharing with the body of Christ. So, and it's all good to go. So thank you, Ivy and Daniel at the back there. AV's all going well. So this morning I want to manage the expectations a little bit. Um, there's going to be a lot of stuff thrown at you, many words. But our prayer is, as we prayed this morning, is that each of you will hear something that you need to hear from God. So there's a lot of things. It's mainly just to equip you, to motivate you and encourage you in your own walk. No matter where you are on that line from you know, the hardened atheist to the most saintly uh, person, we're all on some journey. May you come closer to the Lord as you hear what I'm sharing this morning, and may you realise that he loves you, he's created us, he holds us accountable, but he also he's made us for a relationship with him and with other people. So it's all about the gospel, isn't it? So this morning we're going to go through the, the basic theme is uh, Genesis Foundations for Good News, and I'll, I'll explain why that is. I've also got a... A little wooden box here, which I'll put the lid down on. Uh, oops, I will be uh, explaining that briefly in the middle of the message. Oh, okay, <laughs> I haven't got too much here anyway. Yeah, so I just want to go through the basically two parts to the message. First part is like a theological outline of Genesis and the whole foundational part of where the gospel fits in. Can we trust God's word? And then, if God's word is reliable then we should see evidence of it in the world around us. So there's some scientific things we'll look at that will help you to look at the world through biblical glasses, not through the naturalistic, secular glasses that we're bombarded with all the time. So yeah, Genesis Foundations for Good News. Genesis, of course, is uh, foundational in the, the Bible, 66 books. The very first one is Genesis, which means beginnings. And nearly all the doctrine that we believe as Christians is anchored back and referenced back to Genesis. So it contains a lot of history, and again, it's vital to the gospel. It's the most attacked book in the Bible as well. So as people pull the Bible apart and say, well, it's really a dusty old book of myths, Genesis is the one that's the most attacked. It's not credible. It doesn't stack up. Science has proved it wrong. Well, if that's not true, where do we actually start to look at the truth within the Bible? So we really come as creation ministries believing that this is God's word, it's his uh, written word revealing his character, the history of the world and where we're going in the future, and also about how we should live. Okay, so each of us as human beings, hopefully we're all human beings here this morning. Yes, I see lots of amazing people here. So each of us at some point in our lives, whether it's a deliberate uh, thing we work through, or whether we just push it aside, it's too hard to think about, each of us will have these three big questions about where did I come from, the whole thing of origins, what led up to us living here today as human beings on this planet. Also, really important, especially for young people today, you know, why am I actually here? What's my purpose? What's my identity? You know, what's my hope? What do I have? What reason do I have for getting up in the morning? So why am I actually here? The meaning of life is really, really vital. 
And lastly, of course, we live in a fallen world, and um, you know, unless the Lord comes back beforehand, each of us will get older. You see, for me, the bits are falling off here and there, so eventually our physical body will run out of steam, and that's it. Is that all there is? We just become you know, buried in the ground or whatever? Or is there something intrinsically about us as human beings that transcends physical death? So where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Are really important questions. But what's even more important is, of course, the answers we actually accept and believe about those questions. So we have lots and lots of answers given to us, including from the Bible, but from our secular media, our education system, pop culture, social media, all these things give us answers to these questions. The ones we actually uh, pick out and believe will affect how we live our life. So again, I'm just pulling out, zooming out now to the church, especially in the Western world, the Western nations around the world. You know, the church has really lost a lot of, uh, I guess, influence in society, hasn't it? It's been marginalised, been shut down, been cancelled. And so people see the, the church is irrelevant. We're in a post-Christian era, supposedly. Now I see the body of Christ alive and well in many, many places. But overall, if we look at the stats in our censuses and look around us, we see things are trending downwards, aren't they? You know, people are increasingly are falling away from church. Um, we see youth struggling with identity, self-harm, suicide, all these, these pressures that are really bombarding our amazing young tamariki. And then, we, of course, we see lawlessness rising all around our country, don't we? You know, from ram raids and drug crime and gangs and so on, right up to um, shady business deals and, you know, corruption and so on. So we see across the board our country is slipping away from that foundational uh, I guess 10 commandments basis we had even just a few decades ago. So we have to ask, are we actually reaching the lost en masse like we used to? It's a question for us to think about in the Western world. So each one of us as believers, we have a commandment here, not just a, a good suggestion, it's, it's actually a commandment. And it's from 1 Peter 3.15. It says, in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, so it's all about Jesus, that's the centre. I'm talking later on about science, you know, creation, evolution. But our focus is on Jesus. You know, he's the uh, centre of our faith. So we honour him as Lord. And we always be ready to give a testimony for the hope that you have within you. And again, we've heard some amazing testimonies of people who have trusted the Lord, shared with their neighbours, and given a reason for the hope that's within them. So we each have a testimony of what God has done in our lives. So hang on to that. It's precious to you. And share it with others in love, gentleness and respect, as we're told there. So that's where our authentic Christianity comes across and hopefully breaks down barriers that people have to Christianity. You know, I don't do that sort of thing. And so, yes, we want to live uh, as salt and light in our communities. Okay, so just backing it up again to this whole thing about where did I actually come from? And of course, if we opened up our Bible, which we won't, won't do at the moment, but um, Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter outlines in plain English, well, plain language, whatever, right from the Hebrew through, talks about how God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them in six ordinary days. And there's the order of creation as outlined in Genesis chapter 1. And each day God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And on day number six, he created all the land animals uh, and he also created our original ancestors, our original tipuna, Adam and Eve, real people living at a real point in history, having real children, doing real stuff. And he actually said he blessed them and he said, they're made in my image. I created the male and female in my image. He blessed them and gave them a special role to steward this planet. So that's, if we believe the Bible's account of how we got to be here, that's one answer you could choose to believe to question number one. However, if we go to school in New Zealand or we turn on the TV and we see Sir David Attenborough or we open up a National Geographic, we get a slightly different account of how we got to be here, don't we? 
13.7 billion years ago, you know, a singularity, and we exploded and we had hydrogen gas formed, and over billions of years it slowly condensed into stars and galaxies, and then we had a planetary disk around a star that condensed into planets, and uh, this planet here, Earth, slowly cooled down, and water and uh, atmosphere came from somehow, and eventually somehow life got sparked up in the primordial soup, and over billions of years of mutation, selection, here you are. You're just a result of chance, physics and chemistry over billions of years. Does that make you feel special? You know? No, it doesn't, does it? We are we made in the image of God or we evolved, evolved pond scum. See, very, very different accounts of how we came to be. And what we really believe about those two will affect what we see about the world around us and how we live with other people. So ultimately it boils down to, is God's word trustworthy or is it not? That's all there is. That's the choice we have. Can we trust this as a, the history, the manufacturer's manual from our creator? Or not, and we go to some other source of truth, which of course is some other idea, you know, secular humanism or new age or whatever it is. It's either God's word or not. Now this diagram is actually, it's quite simplistic, but it shows you again, it's not about creation and evolution. It's actually about what's our basis for our truth. Now as if God's word is truth, and we can trust him as a creator, he's told us the truth and revealed himself through the Holy Spirit in the Bible, and of course through Jesus coming to, to earth, then that whole thing of creation is how we got to be here. That's the truth of our origins. And then the Judeo-Christian worldview is anchored in, the roots go into that sort of creation and God's word. And if we live consistently with that, then we'll love you know, our husbands and wives, our bring up our children in God's way, we'll be good citizens, you know, we'll pay our taxes, we'll, um, you know, steward the planet wisely. All these fruit will sanctify life from uh, 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 conception to natural death. All these things come out of that Christian worldview of God setting the rules. On the other hand, if God doesn't exist and we just evolved over millions of years, then secular humanism especially is the God. We are the truth, you know, there's no God, therefore man makes truth. And if people live consistently with that idea, might makes right, get what you can, eat, live, you know, drink, uh, have a good party, and when you die, that's it, that, that uh, hedonistic idea, then that will see the fruit in society of people going down the track of no accountability and no boundaries and also no real hope. Now, am I saying that atheists can't be good people? I'm definitely not saying that. I know many atheists who are wonderful people, do amazing things, but what's their basis for being good? And also, you know, how do they define good and what's their reason for being good? Whereas, of course, we, as if we come into a relationship with Jesus, transformed by the Holy Spirit, we then have a desire and a command to be good. So we're not saved by being good, but it should be a fruit of us being saved. So it's all about consistency. On the other side, we know many people who say they're Christians, but have done many, many embarrassing and tragic things. We see it in the news, don't we? They let the side down. But is that being consistent with Jesus' teaching? No. All right, it's interesting, this uh, A.C. Grayling, he was interviewed a few years ago, and he, he's an atheist, but he made a very interesting statement. And we can tell that we no longer believe in God, this is in England, because of all the CCTV cameras, isn't it? We need another conscience, another person looking at us, because there's no divine hand on our shoulder. You know, we no, no longer have that check in our spirit, our conscience, because of God. We now need surveillance to keep us in line. It's actually quite a good insight, isn't it? Okay, so Creation Ministries, a real privilege to be here. My colleague Mark James, I think, was here in 2016, and he re was really blessed by sharing here, and we are also blessed to be back. So I'm representing uh, Creation Ministries. So who are we? We're a non-denominational, non-political donation-funded ministry, and we're here to equip the body of Christ. And we do that basically by upholding 
the truth of God's word, particularly in its Genesis foundations. So that's what we do. We're actually there to equip and help you with answers to give you a faith-strengthening experience and to give you tools to reach other people. So we have this um, simple ministry model, I guess you could call it. It's called linking and feeding. So what's linking and feeding, you ask? Okay, so we have the church, like your church, for example, and we go, we're go. we invited to come to churches, and we go in as Creation Ministries. We're invited in, we come in, we do a full-on presentation, throw lots of stuff at you, but then you start to feed yourself. You go to our website and other resources, which I'll show you, uh, and then you start to go out. You then, as you're linked, you then feed out to the people that you work alongside, you live alongside, you share with, and so you're there equipped to then reach out, to reach to people we can't reach. So each of you has a sphere of influence that you uh, are related to or work with uh, or study with. Okay, So we're here to link with the church to equip them and help the gospel to go forward. So how do we do that? What sort of resources have we actually got? Well, probably one of our most important resources is our website, just creation.com. So all you have to remember, even if you can't remember a word I said today, is creation.com. There are thousands of articles. There's podcasts, YouTube channels, uh, PDF files you can download, share, search all for free, totally um, amazing resource for those difficult questions. Scientifically based, uh, theologically based resources. We also have once a week uh, an email newsletter comes out called Infobytes and I really encourage you to just think about connecting with Creation Ministries through this. Now I know we get a lot of email these days, don't we, with, you know, thrown at you, uh, but we found uh, over the years that up to uh, basically people stay on our mailing list on average eight to ten years showing that people are actually equipped and encouraged by the resources. So if something happens in the news, like there's a new fossil that's been found that proves evolution, or maybe the amazing James Webb Space Telescope, you know, these photos from distant galaxies, or a few years ago, the mosque massacre or the pandemic. How do we deal with this as Christians? What tools do we have to help people with answers to these big newsworthy articles? And so the Infobytes comes out once a week with links to new articles addressing the topical flavor of the day, I guess. So, and also it tells you about events in your area. That's why we have the, the targeted um, postcode. So if you'd like to just connect with Creation Ministries, if it's not for you, that's fine. Just unsubscribe when you get it. We won't spam you, but we really believe it's a tool to help you in your, in your walk. So Desmond's going to uh, pass the clipboards around. If you'd like to just connect, just fill out your name and your email address, hopefully legibly. The phone number is there purely as a plan B. So if your handwriting's like mine, a bit scratchy, then we can actually get back and contact you and make sure we get the email to you. All right. So I just wanted to just wrap this up with um, looking at Genesis in relation to the whole of Scripture. You know, I really believe that God's word from Genesis chapter 1 right to the end of Revelation 22 is the word of God. It's not just it contains the word of God, it is the word of God. And foundationally, of course, Genesis is right at the key, a core part. But some people say, well, you know, the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is just, it's just too weird, it's too violent, it's just, you know, ridiculous stuff in there, you know, talking donkeys and talking snakes and, you know, genocide and all this stuff. Let's just cut ourselves free of the Old Testament and let's just be Jesus and New Testament Christians. Just tell people that Jesus loves them, just stick on the New Testament, don't worry about the Old Testament, it's just too hard. Well, let's have a look at this whole thing about, you know, the Word of God talks about the Old Testament, you know, is the New Testament concealed and the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. God's word goes right through. But the Old Testament is quoted, uh, sorry, the um, Genesis is quoted over 200 times throughout the New Testament. 
and over a hundred of them are to Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Why Genesis chapters 1 to 11? Well, that covers from creation, the fall, the flood, which I'll talk about soon, uh, and also the dispersion at Babel. So by the time we get to chapter 12, we're up to Abraham. Okay, so we've got a huge amount of history, thousands of years of history in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that's where the, the attack is the strongest on the credibility of the Bible. Um, but the interesting thing is all the New Testament writers and Jesus himself quoted directly from Genesis, including those chapters 1 to 11, every New Testament writer. And here's one example of Jesus quoting directly from Genesis when he's talking to the Pharisees about marriage. And here it talks about, um, yeah, he's talking to the, the Pharisees about divorce and marriage, and he's defining again creation and God's design for us as human beings and in relationship and marriage. He says, from the beginning of creation, notice, from the beginning of creation, not after millions of years, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore, a man must leave his father and mother and be hold fast to his wife. You see, there's already some controversial uh, phrases in there, you know, being created male and female, and a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. That's what God's word says. Okay, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has put together, let no man separate. See, there's Jesus quoting word for word from Genesis, taking it as real history and defining the order of creation and the uniqueness of mankind. Okay, so I believe Jesus. So what about things that we see in the world? All around the world we see so much, don't we, you know, violence in nature. Unfortunately, that thing was supposed to come up afterwards. But yeah, death and war and uh, famine and injustice. We see so many bad things in the world. So what, why doesn't God do something about this? Well, how can a good God allow bad things to happen? This is one of the most asked questions we get about, you know, why is there so much suffering and pain and bloodshed in the world? Well, Scripture again is really clear. It talks about the origin of sin and death. You know, God created a perfect world, you know, with no sin, no pain, no, no bloodshed. And that was his design, perfection. But it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world, and there was separation from the, the Saviour and the Creator, through one man, Adam, again, that real person, and uh, then death spread through sin. And uh, it spread to all people because, I guess, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. So scripture is clear that death is an intruder. Pain and suffering is not the way God designed or used to create us, it's something that came in because of our sin, because of us saying we want to run this show by ourselves. Okay, so it's very clear that sin and death is not the way God intended the whole thing to be. So it comes down to this whole thing about death. I know death's not a popular subject, and I apologise for that in some ways, but we need to face up to it, don't we? You know, we live in a fallen world, so death is the key. If evolution is true, you know, millions of years of things from that first replicating creature in the soup up to us, things have died. The more fit reproduce, the less fit get weeded out. It's just the way nature is. You know, as Tennyson said, nature is red in tooth and claw. Now, some people might say, well, that's the way it is, but God might give you some comfort. But it's a horrible thing, isn't it? This is the thing that's been there for millions of years if evolution is true. But the Bible is very clear that death's an intruder. It came in. It's not the way God created. So it's the result of our sin. Okay, so death is the penalty, physical and spiritual death the penalty for rejecting God's lordship. So it's a big deal. Now I want to say at this point here, um, if you perhaps believe you know, that I, I love the Lord, I love his word, but I, you know, evolution seems to be a scientific fact that's proven. So maybe God created, but he used evolution as the agent of creation, the means of creating us. And that's called theistic evolution. God 
created, but he used evolution to create us. Now, am I saying that if you believe in evolution, you're not a Christian? I'm not saying that, and CMI definitely doesn't say that. We're saying, you know, we're saved by grace. It's not about what we believe about that. But I would respectfully say, think about it through. Is it consistent to see a God that used this process, I'll show you soon, to create us? Is it tying in with his goodness, his love, our uniqueness, and the credibility of the Bible and of Jesus? Because it's a big deal, isn't it? If we try to wedge the two together, millions of years of suffering and bloodshed into the gospel. So we have this picture here of um, Adam and Eve on day six. Everything is beautiful. Everything is very good, just as God said. But if evolution had been true, we have the fossil record you know, all around the world, billions of dead things laid down in rock, and millions of years of pain and suffering. We see that. The fossil record records death. Now, I've actually got a fossil here. Hold it up here. Uh, this is actually a crab. It's from South Canterbury, like a mud crab. There's its shell and so on. And I've had this for a few years now, and I've never seen it move. It's sort of, so I think it's dead. I, th I think this fossil is, would you agree? This little crab here is dead. I, I, I've come to that conclusion. Therefore, a fossil is a record of death. And we also see the fossil, the fossil record covers many, many horrible ways to die, and pain, suffering, and also disease is recorded right through the fossil record. So for me, and we had an amazing worship time this morning, worshiping God. If God had used this process to lead to me, I'd be a lot less likely to worship him and praise him as a good God and all, you know, all the things that we can enjoy as Christians. So in closing this part, when we share the good news, and I know you really are an amazing church with missions, with outreach, outreach into the community, evangelism, when you share the, the good news of the gospel, make sure people understand the bad news, that we are all sinners, we're all separated from God. None of us can save ourselves through our own works, okay? So we can't ever be good enough to save ourselves. And that's why the good news of Jesus, the creator, coming into the world and paying the price for us is with the good news on top of the bad news. Okay, so let's just have a, a look at where we're going now on this whole thing. Well, the Bible, hopefully, you'd say is credible. Let's find out some rational reasons why it is credible. So um, we've got a range of resources on the tables there, and I... One or two places in the talk, I'll just mention some resources that may be of interest to you around the topic I'm talking about. So I'm going to cover a lot of stuff now um, very superficially. I've also got a model ark here, which is a scale, 187th scale of Noah's ark, based on the biblical dimensions. Um, so I'm going to just touch on that very briefly. haven't got time to go into the flood in detail, but it's a key part of the world we see around us. And um, so I think it's important to see that it's not just a little leaky bathtub with a couple of giraffes sticking out, you know, a children's toy and a, a children's fairy tale. One and a half rugby feels long, a serious vessel, about the size of a Cook Strait ferry. Okay, so I will mention that uh, soon. But we've got an answers book, which is one of our main resources, 60 of the most asked questions answered in this little book. So I really recommend you have a look at that and also the intro pack that contains that if you'd like. So it's um, a very, very useful book to give you that broad overview of what we're talking about. So just have to also see, as we go around churches, we'll see, again, it's great to see a whole range of people here, different cultures, different ages and so on. Um, sometimes I'm almost the only, the youngest person in the church, and which is, again, people love the Lord, but they struggle to say, our young people just falling away, what do we do about it? We know now in the Western world, especially many young people are brought up in a Christian home. They go to youth group, they go to, uh, you know, to Sunday school and so on. But when they go out into the world and go to university especially, many of them will struggle with their faith. And you know, um, surveys say that up to 66% will fall away 
and not come back again. And that really grieves me, you know, as a as a father and as a grandfather. Actually, I should mention that too that we've got two children, two adult children, Justin and Crystal. Uh, Justin and Crystal are, um, are married together, and our daughter Imogen, she's still single. But we had a little granddaughter born yesterday, so we've got one grandson, Toby, and last night Ella, our little granddaughter, arrived. So yeah. <laughs> So I should have mentioned that in the, the good news. That's my good news too. But for us, you know, bringing up our, our children now in their late uh, 20s, early 30s, and so they've come through that era of teenagers and so on. And so it's a struggle. They both have a very strong faith, which I thank the Lord for. And thank Desma too, as an amazing godly mum. She's done a lot to bring them up. And again, uh, a good church basis is really important too. But yeah, this whole secular pressure that young people have is huge, isn't it? So what about science then? Let's have a quick talk about this. That's the number one reason that young people give for falling away from faith is science. How can you have a faith and science has proven it wrong? You know, I'm a thinker now, I'm a free thinker, I'm a rationalist. And so this whole thing of science is not the only reason, but it's the biggest reason given in the Western world about why young people fall away from the faith, because they believe it's just not credible. You have to disconnect from your brain to come to church. Now I see lots of you know very intelligent looking people here. You haven't left your brains out on pegs outside, have you? No, <laughs> which is good. Okay, so let's briefly talk about science because there's science, and there's also philosophy masquerading as science. So the kind of science that gives us our amazing um, things we have in our Western world now, you know, in the whole world actually, of air travel, medicine, internet, all these. A food, food increase in production and so on comes out of what we call operational science, where people do stuff in the lab, doing tests, repeating the results, getting peers to review it. That's how science and engineering advances along the way. Now, I'm an engineer. I do software and hardware design, as Neil would remember from the Innovation Park days. So I'm a nerdy type person. I love science. I love technology. You know, Hopefully I haven't disconnected my brain from uh, the world, but I also love the Lord and his word. But this kind of science is done in the present. Everyone working in a lab is doing science day by day in the present. Would you agree? They, they do an experiment and they document it. Tomorrow they do the same thing and yeah, so it advances in the present. But when I pick up my fossil again, I have to use a different kind of science to study my fossil because all I have is a, an object that has a history behind it. I didn't see this thing uh, being formed. I can't test it and I can't repeat it. It's a one-off event sometime in the past that resulted in this object in my hand. So I have to use a different kind of science to study this fossil. And it's a bit like a, um, a crime scene. You know, when you're looking at evidence in a, in a murder scene or whatever, you see the evidence in the present, you have to come up with an account of how it came to be that way. Now, am I saying that's false? No, it's not, but it's much, much weaker than operational science because you don't know what happened in the past, so you come up with a story based on your worldview, the assumptions you know or you think you know about the history of the of the past, and you come up with a story which may be credible or maybe not. So there's two kinds of science, and creation and evolution are both this kind of science. We can't prove evolution or creation by science. Okay, they're historical claims, not scientific. So when we find a fact, we can test it in all sorts of ways, but the history and also the age of it, we cannot measure directly. Okay, so. I haven't got time to go into radiometric dating, carbon dating. We've got some great resources out there about that. But I can tell you again, there's never been a method, there's not one now, and there never will be again, where you can directly, accurately measure the age of anything. We measure lots of things accurately, but then we put together a story of what the history was that led up to those measurements we have. Okay, so don't be put off by proofs from dating why the Bible is not credible. 
So the key thing is we all have the same evidence. That fossil, no matter what I believe about the past, it's the same fossil, isn't it? We have the same rock layers, the same uh, stars, the same uh, oceans and atmosphere, same animals. We're studying the same evidence. It's the same. It's not really good proof for either. It's good proof for whatever your worldview is. So as we go through the next part, just why don't you put glasses on. The question I have to ask is, as I show you various pictures, think about which history makes the most sense. Slow and gradual, millions of years, you know, the present is the key to the past that we're taught, bit by bit over millions of years, no major catastrophes, uh, especially no global ones, has led up to what we see today. Or maybe the Bible's account of a perfect creation, it's fallen into disrepair, we're seeing decline and decay right through the genomes, through geology, everything. And of course we have the major event of the flood. So which history makes the sense of what we actually can observe in the world around us today? So we need to put our Bible glasses on as we go out into the field today. But first of all, of course, I mentioned about the flood. The flood is a huge uh, event in the Bible. It takes up three whole chapters of Genesis, talking about this, the reason that God had to judge the world because it had become so degenerate. And he gave Noah, downloaded some amazingly well-engineered design for a, a barge. And this is still the current uh, design for big container ships, oil tankers, that ratio of length, width and height. It's hydrometrically very, very stable. Now how does some ignorant shepherd back in the Middle East 4,000 years ago know how to build a craft that we're still copying today? Makes, God's the ultimate engineer, isn't he? He downloaded to, to Noah the design for the ark. Now this is based on the design. Our, it's got three decks, it's got the windows, it's got the door. We don't know what the inside was like but we do know it was a very credible uh, account of a vessel that uh, kept the animals and uh, Noah and his family alive for a year. But also, Noah is mentioned 59 times right through the Bible, again, as in the days of Noah, and Peter talks again about the flood, eight people surviving, the whole thing about the world being destroyed by the flood. And so the, the account of the flood is a big, big deal in Scripture. But many people deny it these days because, you know, there's no evidence for the flood around the world. What are you talking about? It's ridiculous. But of course, the reason is it's actually a spiritual issue because if the flood is real and we can see the evidence all around the world, that means um, maybe this book here is semi-credible. That's talking about this God character. Um, I don't want a God telling me what to do. So our default thing is we push back. We don't want to go down the track of where God may be holding us to account and also calling us to respond to him. See, so people have a spiritual blindness not to look at the evidence because of where it may lead in their own relationship and the way they live their life. And I talked about the ark there. So we've actually got a really good book um, out there which is called How Noah's Flood Shaped the Earth. It covers the whole thing about the geology and the flood itself, the, all the erosion and so on that happened, but also about the ark, how the animals were cared for, fed, looked after for over a year. It's a really, really good book to answer those hard questions. Okay, so we're just going to go out, look at a little bit of geology and um, also fossils, and then I'll wrap it up with a cultural thing for us all here. So looking at this geology thing, we look at rocks all around the world. So we can go out and we can go like to the Grand Canyon, and we can actually look at rock layers with our own eyes, can't we? So here we have two layers of, of rock. Again, the Grand Canyon is full of rock, layer after layer, thousands of metres of solid rock, going out for hundreds of thousands of square kilometres. You know, right around the United States. And so we see this soft rock called the Hermit Shale, which is like a mudstone. We're told there's actually 10 to 12 million years of missing time between that and then the Coconino sandstone, which is a very different kind of sandstone, 
laid down on top of it. But what do you notice about the layer, you know, the, what they call the interface between the, the two rock types? It's like, like a line of mortar in a brick wall, isn't it? Absolutely flat as a pancake, going out for thousands and thousands of square kilometres. So if that had been exposed, that soft rock had been exposed to wind, rain, earthquakes, stuff for 12 million years, do you think it would still be like a billiard table smooth? So where's the evidence? Why is there no erosion? Where's the evidence for the millions of years? It's not there, is it? Again, it's this philosophy being laid down. But if all these rock layers were laid down during the flood over that, that year, you know, huge amounts of sediment being ripped up and brought in, sweeping in from one area, and then a few days, weeks, or whatever, another lot comes sweeping back from another area, bringing different types of sand and, and sediment, laying it down as all this huge uh, tumult of erosion in the world. We see these layers laid down with huge differences, but also no erosion between them. What about folded rocks? Here's an example of a, a road cutting in Canada where they've cut down through this mountain, and we see all these layers of rock Again, laid down with no erosion between all the layers, and then the whole lot's been bent up while it's still soft, and then it's set into solid stone while it's been, after it's been folded. Now, the only way you can bend solid rock is either by heating it, or if it's still wet, like potter's clay. Now, they've done analysis, and they can see that these rocks are all, were all laid down while they were still soft and wet, not heated and melted. Again, why is the erosion only really on the top surface? around the world, and all the layers internally are very, have very minimal erosion between them. To me, which history makes best sense? To me, it's the flood and the events around the flood, not millions of years of slow and gradual. All right, another thing which is fascinating around the world are these iconic tourist attractions. They're called erosional remnants, and we see them all around the world. Now, I'm not sure if you've been to any of these or seen them on calendars and pictures. The one down the bottom left-hand corner is the 12 Apostles on the south coast of Australia. But you better be quick because they keep falling over, they keep caving in. <laughs> I think there's only about seven left now, you see. And um, these amazing land formations in the USA, they, they were told these are hundreds of millions of years old. And yet there's been, uh, I think, 43 of them have caved in since 1971. So why should we have all these things lasting for millions and millions of years and this, all around the world we see these things just collapsing, caving in? To me, it makes much more sense. These are remnants from the erosion and the, the flood, its aftermath, and these are just the remnants that have lasted for a few thousand years before collapsing as well. And of course, that iconic picture of Monument Valley in the States, you've got this area swept clean of all sediment for hundreds of thousands of square kilometres. It's completely gone, and yet you've got these erosional plugs sticking up, these lava things, which, yes, they are harder, but they're also um, not that much harder, and they've also got steep vertical sides. And we now know that vertical rock faces erode really quickly. You know, you get frost wedging and, and wind and so on, and they start to fall apart. So A, where's all the sediment gone? And why are these things still here? They should be long gone. Again, the flood makes so much sense. As the water's drained off the continents, as they lifted up after the flood and the water started to strip the sediment away, this is what we'd leave behind with small amounts of ro erosion over the years afterwards. Okay, just some food for thought, you know, to throw it out there, just food for thought. Look at the world with biblical glasses. To me, this makes much more sense based on a catastrophic global flood rather than slow and gradual grain by grain erosion for millions of years. Okay, so just talking about this whole thing about deep time, millions of years is actually not a scientific fact. It's actually a philosophy that's used to interpret what we see. And uh, there's a gentleman called James Hutton back in the late 1700s. He came up with this idea of uniformitarianism, which is the present is the key to the past. So the things we see today, the measurements we make today, well, they've been that way for millions of years, basically unchanged. 
And so this book talks about where that idea came in, how it got into science, how it got into the church, and how it's really eroded, excuse the pun, the whole trust in God's word and um, people's Christian strength. And it also talks about why it doesn't stack up when we look at things around the world like I've just shown you. Okay, so I just wanted to mention one other resource, which is one of my favourite. I mentioned about our children. So Justin, our son, is a senior developer, hardware, sorry, software developer at Gallagher's. So he's a thinking type guy, and he's got even less hair than me. He goes for the number zero. Uh, but he, he loves the Lord, and he's also a thinking sort of guy. And he, a few years ago, came to me and said, um, Dad, this creation magazine we've had in, you know, in our home, that helped me during my teenage years when I struggled with my faith. It wasn't the only thing, but for him, thinking things through, this helped him in his faith. So I really encourage you, we've been getting this uh, in our family for a long time, and our kids were brought up with it in the home. So it comes out four times a year, 56 pages, no ads, um, God-honouring, interesting, family-friendly articles about all sorts of things, scientific, theological, testimonies, and so on. It's a great resource to give to people, to leave on the coffee table at work, or to, to share with family and so on. So if you'd like to subscribe to this, it comes out four times a year, you get one in the mailbox. You also get a link sent to you that you can actually then share with up to five different devices. So if you've got somebody at uni or whatever, you can share your creation mag with them through the joys of modern technology. Yes, yeah, so it comes out for a one or two year subscription. And if you'd like to sign up today, Desmond will pass the clipboards around shortly. If you go today and come and see here afterwards, we'll give you a back issue for a one-year one to get you started. And if you go for the two-year one, um, we've got two DVDs as well as the back issue. Now, I know that DVDs are sort of disappearing, and some people, oh, I haven't got a DVD player. Uh, we are looking at how to uh, deal with that. But in the meantime, though, we'll still give you DVDs. The first one's about Rapid Rocks, yes, for those who've got old-school technology. I remember when DVDs were brand new, high technology. Um, yeah, Rapid Rocks, and secondly, it's called Fallout, Why Young People Struggle With Their Faith and What We Can Do About It. Two really good DVDs. So I love if you'd like to pass those around. If you'd like to sign up today, just fill out the uh, little form there. Your, oops. Yeah, you, oh, sorry, it's the, the forms, um, the slides on top of itself, but that's all right. Um, just fill out your details, and if you're getting a gift subscription for someone, fill out their details on the back. Put yours on the front, and put uh, their details on the back. Okay, and again, I talk about testimonies we get over and over again. People who've maybe picked up one of these, you know, in a waiting room at a doctor, or they've been given one by a, a workmate, and they've gone away and read it, and they've gone, and slowly, bit by bit, blockages they've had to God's word and credibility of the Bible uh, is actually slowly worn away. And with prayer and a loving witness, they will often come into faith because of the seeds that were sown by the magazine. Okay, so I just want to um, just touch very briefly, uh, fairly quickly, on fossils. Because it's really important to realise that fossils are held up as one of the main reasons that... Um, People don't believe the Bible. They say fossils take millions of years to form. How can you have fossils within the biblical time frame of a few thousand years? Which, by the way, where do we get the thousands of years in the Bible? It's from what we call the, uh, the chronogenealogies, which go back, you know, like the Papa going back to Adam and Eve. Multiple places in the Bible talk about this person had these children, these children, these children. And by adding up the ages, you get a figure of a few thousand years. Okay, So the millions of years are not contained in the Bible. It's an idea that's been pushed into the Bible from the outside. 
But fossils, we're told, are proof of millions of years. So we're told that a fossil forms, you know, something dies in the open, sinks down, slowly fossilises over millions of years, you know, grain by grain. It's uplifted, erosion, you dig out your fossil and here we have it. So I got prepared beforehand, based on this, lots and lots of dead things out in water, which ideally should begin the process of fossilisation. Okay, here, millions of fish. Perfect place for them to sink down, slowly be covered up by sand and sediment. In a few million years, we should have lots of fossils here. Seems credible, doesn't it? I, I could believe that. I used to believe that. But have a think about it. Put our glasses on. What If we went back a few months later, what would we actually find here at this place? Bones, possibly, yes. Lots of happy seagulls, wouldn't we? But possibly even the bones would be gone within a few months. Absolutely. Even something as big as a whale, we now know is completely gone, bones, everything, within about 80 years. It's amazing, isn't it? So where are all these dead things lying around in creeks, lakes, rivers, oceans, waiting to be fossilised? We just don't see it, do we? Things that die in the open get scavenged and, and disappear. So when you fossilise something, something has to be buried quickly. You know, here's a fish here covered by a big slump of sediment, mud, silt and so on. It eventually gets covered up by, uh, under, under pressure with mineral-laden sediment. Yes, he is dead, I'm afraid. <laughs> but you see, he's actually now excluded from bacteria, from oxygen, from scavengers, and surrounded by uh, material that can actually force the mineral uh, composition to change over time. So we now know from real science that fossils can actually form within a very short time, period of um, only a few years. And here's some examples. Yeah, one fish engulfing another fish. Look at the detail. It's preserved. No sense of rotting down or falling apart. Amazing preservation. Rapidly buried. Same with this female ichthyosaur. Here she is. We know it's a female because there's Junior. Either being born or being sadly being compressed out by the weight of the sediment, whatever. But look at the detail. Amazingly well preserved. Rapidly buried by a huge catastrophe. What about caves? We're told that caves take millions of years, you know, drip by drip, cave formations form fractions of a millimetre per year. Yes, we do measure some of those rates today very, very slow. But here's an example of, it's not even a cave, it's actually a copper mine that was closed down in 1903. And all those formations, which are up to two to three metres long, have formed in less than 120 years. It doesn't take millions of years, does it? All it takes is the right conditions. And after the flood again, you would have had huge amounts of sedimentary rock, dewatering, slowly hardening, you know, hydrothermal fluids coming up and cutting out caves, formations forming quickly over periods of, of decades or centuries, and slowly drying out to the rates we see today. You see, so the present is not the key to the past in many cases. To me, again, the Bible's account of history makes a lot of sense, even with caves. And lastly is this thing about millions of years. Dinosaurs are now increasingly finding dinosaur fossils that are not fully fossilised. So here's Dr. Mary Schweitzer. Back in the 1990s, they found a big T-Rex in Montana, or Montana, as you want to say. It wasn't, it wasn't frozen, and it wasn't fully fossilised. They found visible remnants of blood cells and capillaries in this fossil. Now, my wife, Desma, she works in a vet lab in Hamilton. She works with blood every day, you know, at work in the micro, under the microscope. And she knows how fragile things like haemoglobin and biomolecules are. So even to have these things last back to the flood a few thousand years ago is amazing, isn't it? Incredible. But could this have lasted 65 million years? And here's Dr. Schweitzer saying, we know the bones are 65 million years ago, uh, oh, sorry, 65 million years old. We know this. Do we really? But 
we have real blood cells, how can they last that long? Well, the answer is they can't. We know from modern chemistry and science that those sort of molecules cannot last anywhere near that long. That's 16,000 times longer than the time back to the flood, based on the Bible's timing. So this is a major problem for millions of years. And again, they're finding dinosaur fossils now all around the world, all sorts of ones that are not fossilised, you know, strict collagens, bone cells, ligaments. Uh, amazing. So it's a major issue for the millions of years. Actually, what I should mention quickly, why are millions of years such a big deal? You see, without the millions of years, evolution is completely dead in the water. Okay, so if you get rid of the millions of years, there's nothing that stacks up for evolution at all. It needs the millions of years deep time. And so these things are starting to really cause some issues for people who hold to millions of years and to evolution. And we've got Mr. Hib here, a really popular little book, uh, Exploring Dinosaurs for Thinking Young People, about putting your Bible glasses on, looking at the world around you, and uh, seeing it through God's word. All right, so I just want to just close with one last thing, just to really encourage you all, as I look around here and I see this sea of different faces, different shapes, sizes, ages, and so on, as I mentioned. So here we are. Well, how do we get here? What's the origin story? I mentioned about creation or evolution. Well, Charles Darwin, of course, was a very famous scientist back in the 1800s, and he wrote a really influential book, published it in 1859, and it was called On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. Okay, many of you would have heard of that. You all heard of Charles Darwin, haven't you? Yep. But a special, special prize for you, if anyone can tell me what the subtitle of his book was. Okay, you're in good company, actually. Richard Dawkins, who's one of the arch-apostles of evolution, he couldn't answer this on a TV interview once. And this is his Bible. It's actually on the preservation of favoured races through natural selection. You see? So now, obviously, Darwin wasn't just talking about humans. He's talking about all of, uh, all of life. But this idea of favoured races... Favoured races, oh, okay. So you imagine the Victorian era, they get told this sort of stuff, and they start thinking of this, you know, this whole idea. Ape-like ancestors slowly becoming more upright, getting lighter skinned, getting less hairy and so on, until you become an upper-class English gentleman old chap, you know. The most evolved, the upper part of civilization. This was endemic, especially in the Victorian era and into the early 20th century. And tragic things came out of this idea that rather than being made in God's image, people of colour were less evolved. Therefore, you could separate people out based on their skin colour, about how close they were to you know, the, the upper crust um, evolved Westerner. And we see that tragic thing, especially you know, First Nation people around the world have had a hard deal of lots of things, but Aborigines in Australia especially, it was really tragic. They were seen as subhuman, and it was actually lawful to go and shoot an Aborigine for a museum specimen. You know, it just, it's, these are our brothers and sisters, you know. You just sort of see this horrible stuff that came out of that evolutionary lie that propagated through the late 19th and early 20th century. Absolutely horrible, isn't it? So let's have a quick, very quick talk about skin colour. Now, I'm Pākehā. I'm actually Pākehā Pākehās because I was born in England. Um, white, I guess you say I'm white. But am I really white? Probably a bit pasty or something, but this is actually white here, so I'm not really white, am I? I'm just sort of a half-baked brown. And I look around and I see some different skin colours here. Some of you have got more skin colour than I have. It's all called melanin. And we all have the same skin colour. It just has, some people have more, some people have less of the skin pigment, which is a sunscreen protecting uh, chemical called melanin. See, so we're actually all the same skin colour, just different shades of the same skin colour. What about this amazing picture of these two beautiful little twins? They are twins, yes. 
you say they're black and white, but they're actually fraternal twins, same parents. They're obviously not identical twins, but they are fraternal twins. Based on what we know about um, genetics and the Bible, why are we surprised? Makes total sense. You can have amazing diversity in skin color even in one generation. And here they are with their parents. So you notice how the parents are mid-brown, dark hair, brown eyes, mid-brown skin, like most of the people still in the world today. So if you're blonde and blue-eyed, or you're very, very dark, like a dark African person, they're really outliers on the genetic spread. Most people are, like these parents here, middle of the road. You see, so you can actually express within, especially if you have parentage from other, other I guess, racial backgrounds, coming out in one generation. It was, yes, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes twins are very hard to tell apart, aren't they? Yeah. But here are these, again, I think they're adults now. This is a few years ago. But again, totally different. If you saw them in the street, no way would you think they're even sisters, let alone twins. And just want to close with this beautiful little testimony of these, these two guys. Uh, they're, um, they're probably in their 80s now. Uh, actually, I think Bill, the other guy, has passed away now. But these guys were soldiers in the Australian Army in the 1960s. And... Um, there's one obviously very white and the other one very black, would you say? And they're supposedly separated by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years of evolutionary history. And the Aborigines have been out there at least 60,000 years. No genetic connection between anyone from Europe. And yet um, Snow actually donated a kidney to Bill. He was the best tissue match, even better than Bill's family. Yeah, see? Again, that amazing closeness, isn't it? We're all one human family. And the differences between races is actually way less than it is between individuals in the same race. So what we know now from uh, genetics is that we're all one human family. So the Bible again talks about, you know, we go back through our whakapapa, and again, I really honour our Māori brothers and sisters, the whole thing of, of your ancestry is important. And we go back, the Bible talks about this whole thing going back to Adam and Eve through the bottleneck of Noah. So we all share a common ancestor in Noah and his wife, and their three sons and their daughters came down, but... So that's the bottleneck, and then it went back out to Adam and Eve. So that's the history as covered in the Bible. And at the bottom, of course, the Tower of Babel talks about Genesis, where God separated people, and they spread out based on family lines and genetic lines. They went out, taking a subset of genetics, and they then uh, populated the world based on those lines. Makes a lot of sense based on what we observe in genetics today. Okay, so... In closing, please come and see us at the table afterwards. We've got a range of resources here, um, different packs and so on, uh, for children's packs. For young people, a great magazine for them as well. And in closing, if you've got any young people, um, maybe children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, going off to university next year, this is a really good little book that will equip them on how to realise there's a worldview issue, there's going to be a battle. If you're a Christian, you will be targeted but how to keep your faith strong, to do well in your studies, come out with a degree, do really well, and not dishonour God at all, how to live in a way that's really going to encourage you and uh, your colleagues. And plenty of tracks on the table out there. There's two containers with tracks. Please help yourself take those with you, and uh, we'd love to bless you to, to share with other people. All right, no time's ticked on. last thing I want to do is just close with this. Are you equipped? Are you actually equipped to reach out to those who are struggling with their faith? That's the question I've got. We all need to know what we believe and why, and to be able to reach out and give people answers to bring them to the, to the Lord. And finally, um, I'm speaking on behalf of Creation Ministries. We actually have a, another speaker called Gary Bates. Some of you may have heard of Gary. Uh, he's Australian but lived in the States. He's coming to Hamilton uh, 
on the 30th of November, and his topic is alien intrusion. Whole thing about alien visitations. You know, did Earth get seeded by life from aliens? What about intergalactic space and so on? So he's a powerful speaker. He's speaking in the Hamilton Elam Church on a Wednesday night, 7 p.m. We'd love to have you there, invite people along. It's very, very topical for skeptics and other people struggling with their faith or where we fit into this whole thing about evolution, about planets out there in other galaxies. So Gary's a, a great speaker. So that's Wednesday, the 30th of November. So thank you all. It's been a long, a long session. Um, please come and uh, speak to us. Thank you again, Murray. I'll pass it back to you. And let your brains cool down. Thank you again for sharing this morning with us. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church Podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.